who are we seeking today? Are we seeking a Jesus that doesn't exist in the Bible? And let me suggest to you that there are many churches, many places in the world today where Jesus is, uh, where God's people are gathered, but they're worshiping a different Jesus. Because if it's not a Jesus of the Word of God, then it's a different Jesus altogether. And so therefore, we have to understand and believe what this says, what the Bible says, not what the Book of Mormon says, not what the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures say, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, nor what anybody else says about God. This is whom God has revealed to us. He's revealed himself as much as he can here, and then he's also revealed himself to us in our hearts individually. And so this is really important that we understand who Jesus is. Because who we're seeking is a big deal. Because like I said before, people are seeking a Jesus of their own making. And so we have to be really careful today because there are many Jesuses that are being worshipped and not the biblical Jesus. And so let's read. We're just going to look at the first 18 verses. I'm sorry, the first 11 verses of chapter 18. Excuse me. But let's read it. Notice what, and again, Uh, The setting of this, as has been since chapter 13, Uh, Jesus is, uh, they were in the upper room and now they're going to be making their way from the upper room in Jerusalem and they're going to walk east, eastward, down through the the Kidron Valley where there is the the lake, or not the lake, the stream, the, the river Kidron, the Kidron River. It's a small thing, stream. (laughs) And then they will go up to the Mount of Olives to the east of the Temple Mount where there was a garden. And so Jesus now is there after his prayer. Remember we looked at that last week, um, John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer where he prayed not only for himself but for his disciples and also for those who would come to him through their word. And by the way, that's you and I. You and I are the result of that third section of prayer that Jesus prayed for. And did God answer that prayer? He did, because we're here, right? For all those who have come to Christ through their word, because Jesus received it, he gave it to his disciples, his disciples gave it to everyone else, and you and I are the beneficiaries of that same gospel. And it hasn't changed. There's no changing or revising of this. This is... God put a stamp of approval, and I want to encourage you in that because you can trust the Word of God because Jesus, and I'm getting off track here, but let me just run with this for a minute because I want to encourage you to have faith in God, to have faith in His Word. Jesus, when He quoted in the New Testament, He quoted the Old Testament. Most of the Old Testament He quoted from. He quoted from the Book of the Law. He quoted from the Psalms and even from the Prophets. And Jesus had his hand upon the Apostle Paul, who penned or received through inspiration and revelation two-thirds of the New Testament, and then the gospel writers who were eyewitnesses who walked with Jesus. So let me ask you, how, how, how much, can you, how much uh, confidence can you put in the Word of God now? When you've got Jesus quoting from the Old Testament, the New Testament be, being written by eyewitnesses, and God... Uh, and men whom God spoke to specifically and directly through and visited them and confirmed his word with many miracles and signs. No other Bible, no other holy book in the world can do that, can make that claim. And so therefore, we know that even the canonization process of all the scriptures, and they bring them all together, we have very much confidence because these are the things that Jesus put his stamp of approval on as it crossed his desk. He put in big red ink, approved, (laughs) approved. So have confidence in it. Amen? Okay, let's look at chapter 18. We're just going to read through the first 11 verses. Notice... Jesus, after having prayed in the upper room, he goes, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, which uh, the words that he spoke in chapters 13 through 17, which is quite a lot, after he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. And we visit this garden when we go to Israel. And if you join us, hopefully next year, we'll, we'll, we'll of course visit this place again. But which he and his disciples entered, and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. 
For Jesus often met there with his disciples. And then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Who are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. And now when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, Who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. And of course, John puts in here as a little dialogue that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which the father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? And that's a, a question, a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Jesus would take the cup of God's wrath, and we'll look at that. But let's go back in verse 1 now. Because notice, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples to this place, this place called Gethsemane. And the name Gethsemane means literally an olive press. It's an olive press an oil press, where they would press olives. It's also the place where Jesus would be pressed beyond measure, where Jesus would actually go um, sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, even though the air at that time of night, and we know that from, as we get further into this, we know that it was cool that evening in the early spring. And yet, because of the agony and the pressure that was on him, and certainly the spiritual pressure that was upon him, knowing what was going to happen and not desiring it, not looking forward to it, but willing to lay down his life for us to satisfy the Father, to offer his life in our place, a propitiation for our sins, that he would take that price. And as he sweat, as it were, it doesn't say great drops of blood, it could have happened. Hematohydrosis, I believe, is something that can happen where, uh, and I think that's the right term, uh, some of you doctors might know, but um, where he, his blood vessels and his uh, capillaries could burst open and he could actually uh, perspire blood. I mean, that is possible. But as he would be under great, intense spiritual warfare, they went to this place and we may never understand what really transpired there. You know, the gospel accounts give us this account of what happened there. And yet, let me suggest to you that the pain that Jesus endured on the cross was significant. I don't want to undermine that. It definitely was. It was a horrific death. But what Jesus experienced spiritually and what he would ultimately be uh, separated from his father for a time, that God the Father would look down on his son and literally forsake him. He was forsaken on the cross. He had never experienced that ever before. I mean, that's, that's beyond our comprehension. Jesus has never, ever experienced that. And he never will again. But he experienced that on the cross. And that separation to me, I can't imagine what that's like. Especially when you've never known it before. But this is the place that they resorted to. And notice in verse 2, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. We know that even before this Last Supper, that Judas had already made arrangements with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. In fact, it tells us that the very Satan himself indwelt Judas. The Satan indwelt him. It says that Satan entered him. Not a demon, not one of his minions, but the big guy himself. You know, I mean, think about that. I mean, being possessed by a demon is one thing, and that's horrible, and hopefully none of us have experienced that. And hopefully there's nobody here like that. But to have Satan himself indwell a man. 
There's only one other man that I know in history where that's going to happen to. It happened to Judas, and it's going to happen to a world leader yet on the, that's going to come on the scene, the Antichrist. We call him the Antichrist. The world at that time will just know him as a, a wonderful political figure. We, the Bible identifies who he is. He's the Antichrist. But this plan had already been hatched by Judas, and so um, Judas was already making preparations for this. Uh, and remember, it, that's why Jesus said to Judas at the Passover meal, at that last supper, he says, what you do, do quickly. Jesus knew what was, what was happening behind the scenes. None of the other disciples knew. They were completely confounded, and they had no idea that Judas would even be capable of such a thing. But this verse also shows that this gospel account was written after the events had already occurred. Right? Because how could the gospel writer said, you know, Judas, who betrayed him? This account was written after the fact, and, 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 and it was compiled and, and put together at eyewitness accounts. An eyewitness. These are things that happened. So don't be afraid to read the Bible critically like that. Ask, it, ask questions of it. Look at it carefully and, and see. Discern the little nuances, the time frames, the vantage points of everyone. It's very important to do that. God doesn't expect you to put your, check your brain in at the door. Bring all of your faculties to the word of God. He's not afraid. Neither should you. Right? Everybody smile. Yeah, it's good. It's good. But notice this word betrayed. Underline it because this word is something completely different than what you might think. Well, I mean, we know that betray is, you know, um, you know, betraying. We know what that means. But it literally means to deliver up, to yield up, to entrust. It literally means to give into the hands of another, to deliver up one to a custody, someone to be judged, someone to be condemned and punished, scourged, tormented, and even put to death. That is literally what this word means. And there is a difference between the word betrayal and denial. We know that Judas betrayed Jesus, and we're going to see in this same chapter that that uh, Peter denied Jesus. But betrayal and denial are two different things. They're both sinful, don't get me wrong. But one was a deliberate act, a premeditative act of hatred and treachery that Judas did by betraying Jesus. And the other one was just momentary cowardice like you and I could go through when we're at Wegmans. And we're standing there in line and somebody from church sees us and says, hey, how you doing? Praise the Lord. And you're like... In a sense, we deny him when we do that. That's a whole different thing. That's a momentary decision of fear of whatever it is. There's a difference between denial and betrayal. When Judas betrayed him, he was a, it was a premeditative act of treachery and hatred. Don't let the movies, be careful of Christian movies, any Christian movie, because they can't accurately display everything that's in the word. And the closer they get, the better it is. But when they start being creative, which I don't know if you know this, but people in Hollywood tend to do that. They get creative. They, they can't just take what the word of God says and, and go with it. They got to, you know, let's, let's add a woman involved. Let's, let's, let's mix it up a little bit, you know, and then we'll put a rated R you know, thing on it, you know. And so they're always doing stuff. But Jesus was betrayed by Judas, but he was denied by Peter. Two different words, two different words. But notice that Jesus often met there with his disciples. And why would Jesus meet them there often? Well, number one, it was quiet. Jerusalem at this time, at the time of the Passover, at a high Passover like this one was, and a, and, a, and a mandatory feast that the men of Israel were to come, it was especially busy, very festive, a significant feast day. So it was quiet over there. And it is today. If you go there, it is a very nice place. I don't know exactly what it was like in Jesus' day, but you go there today and it is like a little haven. It's really wonderful there. And with the olive trees all around, it provided some shade, at least in the daytime. But these, they were there in the evening, in the wee hours of the morning, at night, or at night at least. But also being there, maybe Jesus could use this place as a spiritual visual aid for Jesus to minister to his disciples, to show them of 
the olive tree and that you are the branches. Notice the fruit on the olive trees. That's what I've called you to be. I want you to bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit. And I'm the vine. You get all of your nourishment from me. And you are the branches. You're the, the witness of what I'm doing in your life. And, and these, this fruit is something tangible for people to see and to taste, to see that it's good. They can actually tangibly see it. And see, that's what is very possible Maybe that's why Jesus resorted there. It was quiet. It was a, a great uh, idea for Jesus to use if he so chose to use it. But notice in verse 3, And then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they should have been the ones to have exalted Jesus and told everyone about him. But notice now, they are the instigators. They are the antagonists. And notice who they sent. They sent a detachment of troops and officers. They didn't come themselves. They had hired somebody else to do it. They were always good at telling people to do as I do or do as I say, but don't do as I do. And notice <laughs> these, uh, these chief priests, the the, the, the term here literally means um, hyper, uh, let me see, hyperides, I think is the Greek for it. But basically what it means is an under rower, somebody who is an under rower, somebody who is a, a subordinate to the temple police and the Romans. That's who these guys were. They were just under, roamer, under rowers. And when he sent a, they sent a detachment of troops to them, this word in the, in the Greek is spira, which means a tenth part of a legion, which is somewhere between 200 and 600 men. Now think about this. There's Jesus and 11 men. Not 12, because Judas is on the other side now. He's on the, on the other side of the football team. <laughs> and here's Jesus with 11 men. And you got these couple hundreds of guys coming with torches and, and weapons. What did they expect? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Little did they know that all Jesus had to do, if he so chose, he could have called on a legion of angels and wouldn't even have had to lift his finger. They had no idea how great peril they were in, these soldiers, when they came against the Son of God. They came there with lanterns and lanterns and torches and weapons and when all of this happened and we're going to look uh, next week Lord willing at the illegality yes the illegality of Jesus's arrest and trial there were so many things wrong with this according to the law of that day there were so many things wrong with that does that happen today it never really happens in America does it where there's just um, you know, mock trials and it's just a, a kangaroo court. We don't really see that in America too much, do we? No. But the Jews probably wouldn't have arrested Jesus in the daytime. They waited until the undercover of evening when their dark deed would be accomplished. In fact, I love what Luke says. In another, in, in another gospel, speaking of the same event, it says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, he says, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour. This is your hour in the power of darkness. That's what it was. And you know, Jesus willingly submitted to the purpose that God the Father had for him. He could have defended himself. The disciples could have been armed with AK-47s. They didn't need to be armed with anything. Just the word he could speak. And we're going to see that in just a moment, how powerful his word is. But notice in verse 4, it says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward and he said to them, Who are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Notice that Jesus wasn't surprised by any of this. He was in complete control of what was happening. In fact, he was a willing participant because if it was, it was for this reason that he came to earth. And it tells us in John chapter 12, what does it say? He said, my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. 
This was the purpose of Christ. It wasn't to be a martyr, to be some kind of church figure. No, much, much more than that. The Savior of the world. And this is the purpose he came. For the reason he came. In John chapter 10 it says, Therefore my Father loves me because I laid down my life. Notice it wasn't taken from him. It wouldn't be taken from him. He would willingly lay it down of himself. He says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received from my Father. And even the Apostle Paul in Philippians, what did he say? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a doulos, and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, notice, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. No surprise to Jesus that this was happening. Little did those soldiers know that he was the one who was in control. So Jesus, you know, he says, he went forward, he said to them, whom are you seeking? Jesus knew who they were seeking. But I believe this was Jesus' way of making them accountable for what they were about to do. He knew why they were seeking him, but I don't think they really knew who they were seeking. They said, Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) And then he answered them, Uh, They they answered him, excuse me, verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. I want you to underline or circle a word. Circle that word he. Because that word he is in italics, which means that in the original manuscripts, in the original language, that word was not there. What Jesus literally said was, I am he. And the fact that Jesus said, the fact that they said, excuse me, that Jesus of Nazareth shows their ignorance of who Jesus really was. And Jesus makes sure that they understand who he really is. Who he really is. You'll see this word he in italics in verse 6 and in verse 8 as well, which means that um, it wasn't there. So Jesus is basically saying, I am. I am, and you know this because we've talked about it before, but what is significant about this? Remember when Jesus, or excuse me, when Moses was serving Jethro, his father-in-law, and he went on the backside of the desert, and while he was there, remember what happened. He was walking along one day, and he saw a, a bush that was consumed in flame, but it wasn't on fire, and that voice, God, Jesus, out of that bush, spoke to Moses And then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the... And and, and God wanted Moses to go and deliver his people out of Egypt. And so Moses said to, to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he, and he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. In the Greek, ego, I me. That's what Jesus said, I am. He didn't say I am he, he said I am. And the Jews at that time knew exactly what Jesus was saying. In fact, all throughout the gospel, we see Jesus making these I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And then even in John chapter 8, verse 56, your father, Jesus, speaking to the Jews, He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him, to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And yes, they understood what he meant, because notice what happens in verse 59. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. They knew exactly what he was saying. In John chapter 9, remember, when Jesus healed the blind man who was blind from birth, it says, therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that this man was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? And some said, this is he. And others said, he is like him. But they even said that Jesus said, I am. 
I am. So they knew exactly what it, when, they, when he said, I am, and notice, now when he had said this to him, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. No, they didn't trip over their sandals. It wasn't like one of those things where you see the, you know, the uh, America's Funniest Home Videos and you see the marching band and somebody falls and then the whole band falls behind them. No, the very power of what Jesus said was what drew them back and they fell to the ground. The very power, the revelation of who he was. And then he asked them again, verse 7, who are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? And I almost wonder the inflection of his voice, because I think of all, when we read these things, one of the most important, important parts of what Jesus says is how he said something. How he said it. You know, the first time he may have says, said to them, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they all fell over. And then they got back up and he goes, um, so who are you, whom are you seeking now? Are you still seeking Jesus of Nazareth, even though my deity has been to, um, you know, made manifest to you? Are you still going to be searching for him? Because I don't know who he is. I am that I am. Whom are you seeking? This is wonderful because after this revelation, he asked them again. And he made them accountable. And we are accountable for what we have heard, just like these men were. In Luke chapter 12, it says, The Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say that you, excuse me, truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And then Jesus says, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, his will shall be beaten with many stripes. He knew his master's will and didn't do it. It says that he was going to be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. What's the idea behind this? It's accountability. If you know something, God holds you accountable to it, and there is a uh, there is a stricter judgment or a, um, a, a force behind it. But if you didn't know, you still have punishment, but it's going to be less because you didn't know. And you know, that's really important for us, isn't it? When we go to driver's ed school, when you're in, when you're in high school, you learn the rules of the road. And they do that so that when you get out and you go 85 miles an hour in a 45 or in a 35 you're going to get pulled over and there's going to be a consequence. You're held accountable by the law. The law says this, and now that you know it, you must obey it. And if you don't obey it and you get caught, you're going to have to pay the price. But if you didn't know the law, sometimes the officer will say, well, didn't you know that that wasn't true? Well, you know, and, and, and if you really honestly didn't know for some reason, you better have a really good excuse, like I can't speak any language, or I, I'm blind, which, why are you driving anyway? But anyway, that's beside the point. Then you would be punished less. You might say, you know, I better get another cruiser to come and take you home. You shouldn't be driving behind a car with those dark glasses of yours. So Jesus was making sure that these men and Judas knew what they were doing in betraying an innocent man. And oh, by the way, no big deal, but you know, it's Almighty God as well. You're betraying Almighty God. And we too are held accountable for our words. Or for what we know, excuse me. In Romans 7, Paul said, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I did not... For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. And so he goes on and talks about the, the law. Once he heard the law, then he was accountable to the law. And Jesus here is telling them 
I'm not Jesus of Nazareth. That's who you're seeking, but let me tell you who I really am. And so when he said, I am, they should have got the point, but they did not, unfortunately. So then Jesus said to them, whom whom are you seeking? And they said again, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. can't even speak this morning. Jesus of Nazareth. They still didn't get it, but now they are accountable and culpable for their treachery. I love accountability. It's a great thing, isn't it, to be accountable? It's not easy to be made accountable, but being accountable is actually for our safety. It's it's part of our conscience and even a governor of ours. Now, the other gospel accounts tells us that somewhere about this time, Jesus, or excuse me, Judas identifies Jesus to the guards. And he was so plain to them, he probably looked like all the other disciples, and they didn't know who he was, probably, but Judas knew him. And so what happens? It says to us in Matthew, Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. And immediately he went out to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. You might want to underline that word kissed, because this word kiss is not what you think it is. This was not just a friendly kiss that men who would greet each other in that culture might do. Judas kissed him a lot, and he kissed him with earnest. This greeting was the exact opposite of how men who truly loved and respected each other in the Middle East, it was totally opposite of how they would greet each other. In my opinion, this was very sick, and it was very demonic, and shows the perversity of our enemy Satan. This word kiss, literally, look at this. To kiss earnestly, to kiss again and again. It wasn't just a peck on the cheek like I'm greeting you. No, it was Judas went overboard and kissing him, kissing him, kissing him earnestly. And think of the, the, how horrible that is. The devil being in Judas, kissing the Son of Man profusely and over and over again kissing him what a sick thing and people think that Judas was just this you know an innocent guy and he got caught up in a thing and maybe he was just following some kind of role and acting out the play of what was gonna you know the the prophecies of the old testament that he had betrayed no Judas operated on his own behalf he was completely oblivious to those things he did it of his own heart and of his own volition and God held him accountable for it Notice what Jesus said in verse 8. I have told you that I am. Notice, again. Therefore, if you seek me, then let these go their way. Notice that they were seeking Jesus of Nazareth, but he's saying, I am. I am not Jesus of Nazareth. I am Almighty God come in human flesh, the Logos of God. It was more accurate for Jesus to say, I am, rather than to say Jesus of Nazareth, because that's truly who he was. Truly who he was. Didn't Isaiah say, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. Okay, that's a game changer. This son, whoever it is, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, and then this son, for unto us a son is born. 700 years before Jesus was born, this son would be born. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This son would be called Almighty God and Everlasting Father? Are you kidding me? Almighty God and Everlasting Father? Yes. The great I am. Hallelujah? He is the great I am. I love it. And Jesus answers, says, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. Again, the he is in italics. And so it could literally read, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. And I love Jesus as the good shepherd, always seeking to have his disciples be let off the hook. He never wanted them to, to suffer like he was going to suffer. They would suffer, but this was not their time. And their faith, I think, was so weak at, at, at this time that they still needed some help. And Jesus knew that. 
He knew where their faith was. He knew that they were slowly piecing together all the things that he had told them and putting together the scriptures from the Old Testament and going, oh my gosh, this, is, this really is him. And they were slowly coming up to speed. Even after his death, they were still scratching their head a little bit. And I like that because it reminds me of me. Because I don't have it all together. But Jesus said this, Of whom those you gave me, I have lost none. And Jesus spoke this, speaking of security and the assurance that we can have. Yes, you can have that assurance. Do you have that assurance? Do you have that security and assurance of salvation? You can. Because John tells us in, in chapter 6, verse 39, this is Jesus speaking, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that he has given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up, raise it up at the last day. Jesus said also, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and again, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. How secure is your salvation? How secure are you in Christ once you have given your heart to him? Oh, you're very secure. There's no one that can pluck you out of God's hand. I'd like to see him try. Isn't that good news? Again, everyone smile because that's our, that's our lot. I'm so blessed, aren't you? That's what, we, that's what we have inherited. It's so wonderful. And he's lost none. He's lost none. And the only one that was lost was Judas, fulfilling those scriptures in Psalm 41 and also in uh, Psalm 109, verse 8. But while Jesus was with them, or when he wasn't, be, wasn't with them physically, they would not be lost. And that word lost can mean literally or figuratively lost. Like I'm literally lost or I'm lost spiritually and completely like lost to hell basically. It could mean that, but it could also mean lost as far as even death, losing your life. But while Jesus was with them, no one was going to touch them. They were immutable. They were invincible when Jesus was with them. In fact, even after he ascended to the Father, they are still invincible. And by the way, you and I are also invincible until Jesus has finished what he wants to do in our lives. Know that for surety because you are safe and, and secure until he is ready to call you to himself. I just wish I knew when that was going to be. I'm not afraid of dying and, and I'm afraid of the process. I don't, I don't, I'm not looking forward to the process. I hope it's quick. I hope I eat a really nice meal and then just in the middle of the night. And I'm in glory, you know, like I eat too much pie one night and, you know, I'm in glory. I, I want to go that way. I don't want to be rotting away in some prison cell, although Christians have. We're not exempt from any of these hard things. But they were, and we are, invincible until it is our time. And only God knows that time. But the disciples, remember, they were under great duress. And Jesus made sure that the temple police, they only took him. He said, you can take me, but let these go. Notice how in control he is. You'd think that they'd say, hey, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, Jesus, but there's 600 of us right here, and you're telling us what to do? And Jesus could basically say, yes, you're going to take me, but you're going to let these go. You got me. I'll go willingly, but let these go. And that's exactly what happened. Who was in control? Who was in control? They thought they were in control, but Jesus, hallelujah, is in control. Love that. Never forget that, that he is in control. Not man, not any government. He is in control. Love that. And Jesus knew that this wasn't the right time for them. It wasn't the right time for his disciples. Their faith was still kind of weak. And it says in Corinthians that, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, because no temptation has overcome you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will give you a way of escape. And he gave his disciples a way of escape, because they were not able at that time to endure that temptation. He made sure to it. He saw to it that they would be 
exempt from this. And then Simon Peter, verse 10 says, having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. His name was Malchus. And I love, in the other gospel accounts, it doesn't tell us who the name of this person was who drew the sword. But John, because John and Peter were like this. They were close together. John didn't have any problem saying, yeah, it was Peter. And I love the, fr- they, they must have had a really great friendship, you know, together. And the, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say, somebody drew a sword. One of them drew a sword, but Peter, or but John says, no, it was Peter. It was Peter who drew the sword. And notice, cut off the right ear of the high servant, or the, the servant's uh, the high priest's servant cut off his ear. And that was a big deal because when they would anoint the priest, they would always anoint the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe on your feet. They would anoint those things. And now Malchus, he's missing his right ear, which to the high priest, that would be significant. But Peter had a sword. And I don't believe that Peter was aiming for his ear. I believe that he was going to take his head off, but Malchus moved or the sword glanced off his head and took off his ear. Peter was more than likely right-handed. And think about this. If somebody's standing, and when I I read this, I I was thinking about just bringing somebody up as a vision. Yeah, come on up. Yeah, just, just stand right here. Okay, so here is Malchus, and here is here is Peter. And most people were, you don't have a sword, I do, sorry. But he, he pulls his sword out, and it probably happened very quickly, and he just pulls it off like this, and he goes like this, and at the last minute, he turns his head, seeing it coming, and it just takes his right ear right off. Peter was aiming for the head. He was going to take his head off. Thanks, you can sit down again. Thanks. I'm glad his head is still on, by the way. He's a great guy. But I believe in this act that Peter was trying to redeem himself, to show his devotion to Jesus Christ, because he, even though he was rash and he was misguided, Peter did this perhaps because of what the Lord had told him in the upper room just prior to this. Remember what he said to him. He said to him, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has, desired, has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you even knew me. And I think after Jesus, and and that other scripture that's there too, is just as, you know, Peter said, even if all were made to stumble, yet I will not. And really, it just speaks of Peter not really knowing who he really was. And to prove himself, and you can see it, and and I got to give him courage, I got to give him credit for the effort that he made. Because here he is, he the Lord already told him that he was going to deny him, and now he's standing in front of the saying, he's like, you know what, I, to, save my, to redeem myself here, I know I had a big game, well, now I'm going to bring out the big game. And so he takes out the sword, and he goes at it, and the Lord says, put your, put your sword back into the sheath, Peter. You have a lot of zeal, but with no knowledge. This is not about me fighting this. The battle has already been won. Got to do this. Put your sword back up in its sheath. And I even like what he does. He reaches down. Luke tells us this. None of the other gospels tell us. But Luke reaches, or Jesus reaches, reaches down and picks up his ear. And he walks over to Malchus and he grabs. I, I, I just, I vision this. Doesn't it blow you away? An enemy, one who has come toward him and he picks up the ear and he holds him by the, hair, by the head and he sticks that ear and immediately his ear is restored. Can you imagine loving your enemy like that? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And he put that on display that night, didn't he? So let me ask you, whom or what are you seeking? 
You know, the world is seeking God, and many are seeking him through the lens of a false, uh, a false word or false you know, Bible or whatever, or through deceptive teachers and gurus. The Mormons, they're seeking God, but they believe that Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. They believe that Jesus and Lucifer are equal and created equal, that they're brothers together. Just, you know, like a yin and the yang kind of thing, you know, just one on the opposite side. But the Bible says that Satan was cre- is a created being and Jesus is uncreated. So you got a problem there doctrinally. It's a big one. It's really huge. It's really huge. <laughs> and then the Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They just believe that he's another a holy man, a guru, someone to be respected, of course, but probably more like the Archangel Michael. That's what they believe. And even Catholicism, yes. Even Catholics believe that Mary is now co-redeemer with Jesus, thus bringing Jesus down and elevating Mary up. That's blasphemy. Pope Francis and the Vatican are also condoning same-sex unions and homosexuality. I've got the articles that, that these things are real. They're happening. And one of the great mysteries of the 21st century is this to me. To me personally, it's a mystery. But in the last few years, the Roman Catholic Church has left their constituents. They've left them and have gone further to the left, has made their bed with the liberals and the globalists. And I'm not just going to hang, I'm not just, I'm not just going to uh, put the finger at the, uh, the Catholics either. The Protestants, their churches are splitting over gender issues, over LGBTQ and over uh, CRT and homosexuality. They're, they're splitting. Movements, denominations are splitting in half over this stuff. And even politically, you know, the Republicans, the congressmen and women, many have left the Republican Party and are more liberal than their constituents. Not all of them, but some of them. And the Democratic congressmen and women, they've deserted their constituents. The Democratic Party is not what it used to be. It's completely radical now. They've gone so far left, embracing socialism, communism. But what are you seeking? Are you seeking a political figure? Are you hoping for Donald Trump to win? To save us? You know, if he gets, you know, if if things go the way they are, I'm just going to be honest with you. Well, let me just say this. (laughs) He is not our savior. I'm glad for him if if he continues to to do what he's doing. You know, I mean, it's all good. I'm all in, you know, in that sense, because it's the right, you know, you look at all of it together and you're like, it's the lesser of the evils. But he's not our savior. He is not our Savior. Are you looking for a political figure? Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking just a good man whom history, and I'm speaking of Jesus now, are you seeking just a a good man like Jesus? He's more than a good man, but are you seeking a good man whom history has a lot to say about? Are you seeking a figure whom your parents or grandparents believed in and forced you to go to church to learn more about? Are you seeking a man who's a miracle worker to cure cure you of your sickness or maybe your disease or maybe someone who might be able to fix your marriage that's on the rocks? Are you seeking for someone who can help you kick your cigarette and gambling habit, your prescription drug or cocaine or heroin addiction? Are you seeking somebody who can clear your guilty conscience from your past sins, your adultery, your fornication, your pornography, your stealing, your lying? Are you seeking Jesus of the Bible or Jesus of your own making? Whom are you seeking? Do you worship a Jesus that allows you to live and be intimate with your girlfriend or boyfriend outside of marriage? That's a different Jesus. Jesus would not condone that. It's sin, and you need to, if you're calling yourself a Christian, you need to turn from that. And there are many people in churches today that are living that way, and they think it's okay, and it's not okay. And I've even known people who have come to Christ while they're struggling with something and the Lord delivers them from their problem or addiction or gives them the spouse of their dreams and then they happily forget who Jesus is and they move about their merry way after all he's done. But are you seeking Jesus? Are you seeking someone who can save your soul? Because only he can and bring you into everlasting life for eternity, forgiving you of all of your sin and changing your life for his glory, becoming a disciple of his forever and being an ambassador of his 
and a witness for Jesus? Are you seeking the Messiah, the Son of God? The only one who can do all these things and much, much more. Jesus didn't just to come, he didn't just come to save your soul. He came to save your soul and your whole body as well. What does it say in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of Jesus Christ. He wants to redeem all of you. Not just one part of you. You're a three-part being. He wants to redeem all of you. And so when this is why when Jesus said to the soldiers, whom are you seeking, why it was such a big deal. Who are you seeking? And what is your purpose? Oh my goodness. Time is flying by. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? This cup that is spoken of here is a cup of wrath. A cup of wrath. In fact, it tells us in Psalm 75, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink them. In Ezekiel 23, beginning in verse 31, You have walked in the way of your sister, and God here is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, speaking to them of the northern ten tribes who had already been taken captive. Now he's looking at Judah and says, You have walked in the way of your sister, the northern ten tribes. Therefore, I will put her cup in your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink of your sister's cup, the deep and wide one. You shall be laughed to scorn and held in derision. It contains much. And you will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. Speaking of Israel, the northern ten tribes, and you shall drink it and you drain it and you shall break its shards and tear at your own breasts. For I have spoken, says the Lord. Shall I not take of the cup that my Father has given me? Jesus took the cup of God's wrath so that you and I would not have to. If we could have the worship team come on up at this time. Jesus took that cup, and that's why we're going to take communion this morning. Because what he did is he took the wrath of Almighty God for for me, for all of my sin, not just my sins from my past, but the sins in my present and the sins yet in my future. He has died for them all and made provision for us, and that's why we put our faith and our trust in him, the only sacrifice that God would, rec would, would recognize. It's the only thing that, it's him. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. He is the bread of life. He poured out his body. His body was broken on the cross. That's why we take the bread. His body, his blood was spilled. Holy blood, the very blood of God was spilled on the cross for you and for me. What a wonderful provision God has given to us. Amen? Amen. And you and I, when we take this today, that's what we are basically saying. We are communing with the one, saying, Lord, all that you've done for me, I give you my life. If you did all that for me, then you've got to have all of me. Take all of me. Have you given Christ all of you? He gave it all for you, and he was almighty God. A small thing for us. Significant, don't get me wrong, but comparatively, a small thing for me to say, Lord, I'm really nothing and I can't do anything apart from you. I know that to be true. But Lord, such as it is, here's my life. Take me and use me according to your plan, your purposes. I surrender. Have you surrendered? Are you still fighting? Surrender today 
and let's remember what he did. And when we take the cup and the bread, that's what we do. We remember what he has done for us. And so after um, we sing a song of worship, while we're singing the song of worship, please come on up and grab the bread and the cup. Bring it back to your seat and we'll take it together, okay? And just think about the setting that we're, we're looking at even this morning in John chapter 18. Jesus is already over in the Garden of Gethsemane and these things are happening. His arrest and going through all of this. And, and just hours before that, just hours before this, he was in that upper room with them doing this very thing that we're doing now. And in chapter 22 of Luke and verse 14, it says, When the hour had come, he sat down at that time. And the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And notice what he said here in verse 19. And he took the bread. And he gave thanks, and he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And so let's take the bread. And likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. You know what I think interesting there is Jesus said it in the past tense. A covenant doesn't come into effect until after the death of the testator, the one whose testament is written. It doesn't come into effect until after his death. But he says right then, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you as if it was already a done deal. You know why? Because it was. Jesus knew what was coming and he could speak with all authority in heaven. This is what's going to happen. And here it is. The blood of the New Testament and so let's partake. In the Middle East, then and even today, sharing a meal, doing what we've done here together, I know it's kind of somewhat informal or maybe more formal, I should say, than what it was that night. But to share a meal with somebody was basically to, to hold them in honor. And it's basically saying, I want to have a meaningful relationship with you. It wasn't like you and I, you know, we can, you know, we, we can go out to dinner with somebody, and we may not really, we like them, you know, maybe, but we're, we're okay. But back in that culture, to actually sit down at a meal was significant. Saying, I want to become one with you. Not in a weird way, but just, I want to become one with you in our friendship. I, I'm, I'm here, I'm investing in you. And think of all that Jesus has invested in us. He has, he's invested in us, and he continues to do it through his spirit now, who has indwelt us and who will come upon us at different times for service, to give us, to empower us. And you know, Jesus has so much more that he wants to do in and through each of us. But again, I have to ask, whom are you serving? Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking something else? Or are you seeking the God of this word of God? Are you seeking Jesus? Make sure that you're seeking Jesus. Not the Jesus that's portrayed on YouTube. Not the Jesus that's portrayed on whatever it may be. Or what somebody else may be saying. And that's why Paul exhorted the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, I believe it was. 
He admonished them because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Is it true what they're saying about Jesus, that he had an affair with Mary Magdalene? Does it say that in the Bible? No, but was it some spurious manuscript that they found in the desert somewhere in the Dead Sea? That somebody, the devil was working back then just as much as he is now, by the way. Even Paul had problems with manuscripts, the letters that he would write to them. Somebody would write a letter and say completely, something completely opposite and then sign his name at the end of it. And that's why he had to write Second Thessalonians to straighten out the, the error. So these things were happening. But did Jesus have an affair? No, he didn't. That's a different Jesus. No, but the Jesus of the Bible, he cast out seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. He loved her, but he loved her biblically. He didn't take advantage of her. He was always a gentleman. He was always God in the flesh. He never went to the fleshly things. And so let's stand and let's give him thanks. Lord, we thank you this morning, Lord, just for your example to us. And Lord, of course, you're God and you there's no sin within you. And yet, God, we look at us and we know that there is sin within us, even though we are blood-bought Christians, even though we may be born again, Lord, we know that we are susceptible and it's possible for us to fall. And sometimes we do, Lord, and we pray that we would, you would just continue to forgive and cleanse us and give us that gift of repentance, Lord, in anything and all things that your word has told us about who you are and what you have said. Lord, this is about you, and this is the Jesus that we worship, the one that's in between these leather, <laughs> this leather binding that we have on our laps. That is the Jesus that you have approved of. No other Jesus. So Lord, we thank you and praise you and we love you and we look forward to your soon return. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Amen.